0: 1 Kings, and uh, we're in chapter 18, and uh, if you grew up on the pews, you know this scene. This is an amazing text, an amazing picture as Elijah now is told to come back and talk to Ahab. Now remember, you have in, in chapter 17, God sends Elijah to Ahab with one very simple message. That message is, it's not going to rain until I say so. That's it. It's not going to rain until I say so, which is an important message because Israel was to understand if there was drought and famine, that was a judgment by God for breaking the covenant. And it becomes clear that Israel has not understood that because the very first verse of chapter 18 tells us now we are in the third year. We're not in the third year of Ahab's reign. or not in the third year of Elijah being a prophet. We're in the third year of the drought. We're uh, well into this drought now, and nobody is seeking after God. Nobody is looking and trying to consider, why have we had this drought for over three years? I mean, can you imagine? For over three years. I mean, just the amount of economic wreckage that would occur for there not to be rain on the land for more than three years. But in chapter 18 of 1 Kings and verse 1, we are told now the word of the Lord comes to Elijah and he says, I want you to show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. And these next five verses then go about trying to show us how terribly severe the situation is for Israel. It becomes stated in verse 2, where it says, now the famine was, was severe in Samaria. You Notice in verse 5, we're told that Ahab, it says to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we might find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. Right now what's happening is Ahab and his servant Obadiah, not to be confused with Obadiah, that's written a book in your Bible, they're going through the land and they're going to part ways and all they're trying to do is find some kind of grass somewhere for even the king's animals. You can imagine if the king is struggling with the drought, how is everybody else in the land doing? He doesn't even have enough to be able to deal with his... Own cattle and his own animals, and so that's what they are doing. But we are told something very special about this man named Obadiah. We're told in verse 3 that Obadiah feared the Lord greatly while in a position in Ahab's house as ruler over certain affairs of the house. He fears the Lord, and in verse 4, we're told. That when Jezebel is going around trying to kill all the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred of them and hid them in a couple of caves by fifties so that they would be protected and also giving them uh, the food and water that they would need while they're being hidden away. So here is this uh, quiet worker of God within Ahab's own administration. And so we're left with the scene and with this severity that Ahab tells Obadiah, you go that direction looking for some grass, I'll go this direction looking for some grass. And in the process of them splitting ways and trying to find something for Ahab's animals to eat, Elijah suddenly comes onto the scene before Obadiah. And he has a very simple message for Obadiah. Verse 8, he tells Obadiah, It is I. Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. Sounds, sounds very simple. Just, uh, hey, I'm, I'm here. I want you to go get your master Ahab and tell him I'm, I'm staying here. Listen to what Obadiah says. Verse 9. He said, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? (laughs) Go go get your master. He goes, are you trying to kill me? What have I done to you? (laughs) Well, what do you mean, Obadiah? Verse 10. As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, he is not here... He would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. As soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you to I don't know where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord and how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell the Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. I love that. I love raw windows into conversations like that. (laughs) What what are you trying to do? And I love what he explains. I'm going to leave you. And I'm going to go find Ahab. And the Spirit of the Lord is just going to pick you up and take you somewhere else. And we're going to come back and you're not going to be here. And then he's going to kill me. And hey, don't you know I'm trying to do a good work around here. I love that people have a sense of how Elijah operates. (laughs) And so in the process of that, Elijah then says in, in verse 15, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him Today, So Obadiah is afraid Elijah's going to disappear and you have Elijah making a promise, I'll stay right here, you go get him uh, and I have a message for him this very day to give to him. And so verse 16, Obadiah goes and gets Ahab and tells him, and I think it is also interesting to observe that we were told back in verse 10, Ahab has sent people all over the land looking for Elijah. Can't be found. And when people say they couldn't find him, they'd take an oath that they had never seen him or found him. And so God is hiding his prophet, again an indication of God keeping his word from Israel because of Israel's rebellion. And so now Ahab appears, and the very first words of Ahab, verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, O troubler of Israel? There, there you go. Hey, troubler of Israel, is that really you? I've been looking for you for three and a half years. Good to see you. And I think it is interesting for Ahab to call him that because that's not an insignificant term. That is a rather serious title to be placed upon Elijah. It is a description that is given in Joshua 6 and in Joshua 7 to Achan when he troubled Israel by hiding the possessions in his tent and allowing them for the wrath of God to break out. Same thing in 1 Samuel 14 and verse 29. Remember Jonathan, his son, calls Saul a troubler of Israel when he makes that rash vow that in the middle of the war nobody's going to eat. Makes a whole lot of sense. Let's do that. And don't eat while we're in battle. And so Jonathan says, he's troubled Israel uh, with this foolish oath that he has taken. And so for Ahab to say those words in regards to Elijah, it is ultimately to say, you're the reason that disaster has come upon this land. And that's why Elijah responds in verse 18, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and have followed the males. The reason for the disaster is not because of me. But it's because of you, Ahab. Because you have disobeyed the Lord. You have not followed his commands. You've, You've been in violation of God's covenant. And that's why things are the way they are. But. You would perhaps suppose that now what Elijah is going to do is give a message of condemnation. Let's, let's light up a good sermon against Ahab and how he's broken the covenant and he's deserving of wrath. And like what we've seen in prior chapters where a prophet would come to Jeroboam and say, it's because of you and your house that it's all going to be destroyed. Or we saw that uh, with Basha and his house. Same thing over and over again. You with kept the sins of Jeroboam, and have done even worse. Therefore, thus says the Lord God. But, I want you to notice it tells us in verse 19 what Elijah says. is Here's what I want you to do. I want you to gather the people of Israel, and I want you to get your prophets of Baal, and I want you to get your prophets of Asherah, and I want you to meet me at Mount Carmel. Now, the reason this location is important to keep in mind is Mount Carmel is not in Israel, nor is it in Judah. Mount Carmel is well outside of God's promised land. It is in Sidon. It would be what we would call Phoenicia today. It's the homeland of Jezebel. And the reason why that is important is because this location to be in Sidon is what we would call in sports home field advantage. That's where the Baal worshippers are. That's where Baal operates best. And so rather than having the Baal operate within Israel, let's all take a trip to Mount Carmel, to Sidon, where Baal is strong on a high hill, high mountain, Mount Carmel, where he can do his best work. And let's gather all the prophets there, and we'll just kind of have a little bit of a challenge here on this mountain. And so that's what he puts forward. And I want you to notice that that's what Ahab does in verse 20. Ahab sends for the people of Israel and gathers the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And what Elijah says next becomes really the hub of everything about what this whole scene is about. And you notice in verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people and he said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. I want you to notice really a very simple declaration that Elijah puts forward. How long are you going to keep limping between the two opinions? How long are you going to waffle? How long will you sit on the fence? How long will you be noncommittal? How long will you keep going back and forth between serving the Lord and serving the Baals and the, the Asherah? And so if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And what I want you to notice is the response of the people should be shocking. Because the response of the people in verse 21 is they don't have an answer. It's almost as if they can't commit or don't know who is God at all by this point. We're so far removed at this point from with all these wicked kings from the truth of God. That here Elijah makes a very simple declaration. You need to choose who you're going to serve. Very simple. Almost like the words of Joshua. Are you going to serve the Lord? Are you going to serve the Baal? Stop limping between the two. And they sit there and go. So here's what Elijah says. Verse 22, he points out the odds. Verse 22, he says, I'm only one left of the prophet of the Lord, but the prophets of Baal are 450. You just kind of want to set the table. They got 450, I'm only one. And we're inside of them. We're at Mount Carmel. So the odds are stacked in Baal's favor. And so here now is the presentation of the challenge. In verse 23 and verse 24, he says, we've got two bowls. You pick first which one you want, and you set up that animal and prepare it to be an offering. Place it on the altar. Place it on the wood. But don't light a fire. And I'll do the same. You call on your God, and I'll call on mine. And whichever one answers by fire, that one is... God verse 24 at the very end it says and all the people said it is well spoken all right the terms of the challenge have been laid out we'll both set up altars and we'll see who's really God since you don't know and he puts it to them hey serve the Lord or serve the they go, well we don't know okay well let's see who really is God Let's see who you should be serving, who should be your lord and master. And so the two altars begin to be prepared. And with that, then, it is interesting that essentially Elijah says, you go ahead and go first. And so they prepare their altar, they prepare their bowl, they prepare the the wood, and they get everything all set. And verse 26 tells us that from morning until noon, They cried out upon the name of Baal, saying, O Baal, answer us. Imagine how many hours you got to listen to that. As they're going around the altar, O Baal, listen to us. And they're calling for Baal to answer by fire. Look at the words of verse 26. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. They're crying out for hours, all morning until noon. Oh, Baal, answer us. And there's silence. Oh, Baal, answer us. And no one answers. And they're limping around the altar. Oh, Baal, answer us. Nothing's happened. Now, if you were ever unsure if God had a sense of humor, the next sentence will certainly put that to rest. Elijah now takes an opportunity to mock the God of Baal that they have put so much effort into. In verse 27, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. I mean, he is a God, right? Shouldn't something be happening? Either he is musing, of the terms they say, he's deep in thought, you know, he he can't be bothered right now, you know, he's distracted and he's thinking really hard about some other things right now, and while he's thinking about that, maybe that's the problem. Or he's relieving himself, my favorite. He's over in the bathroom right now and can't be bothered, he might be available later, but right now he's a little bit occupied. He continues. Or he's on a journey. He's on vacation. He's on a trip. You know, sometimes these gods, you know, they just leave the land for a while and you can't access them. And they put a little sign on the door, you know, come back next week and he might be available to you. And so he's on a vacation. He's on a trip. He's on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and he must be wakened. (laughs) Absolutely fantastic answer. This is your God? You've been calling out to him for hours, and nothing has happened. So what kind of God is this that you are calling out for? Is he asleep? Is he on a journey? Is is he deep in thought? What has happened here that nothing is going on? And you have to love what this does, because in verse 28, the prophets of Baal, they cry aloud all the more, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords, and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. They just keep crying out and crying out, and they're cutting themselves, trying to get the, the, the Baal God to listen to them. And verse 29 tells us that midday passes, and they raved until the time of the offering of the oblation. So now we are in the evening. So this whole challenge starts in the morning. And for hours they've been calling out to Baal and there is no answer. We get to noon and Elijah goes, really? I mean, where is your God? What are we doing here? Uh, Is he going to do something? So then they really step it up a notch and start cutting themselves and bleeding everywhere, calling upon Baal. All afternoon this happens now. And so now we're around the five o'clock period that afternoon. And I want you to notice the end of verse 29. But there was no voice, no one answered, and my favorite part, no one paid attention. No voice, no answer, no one cares. (laughs) This is no God at all. Verse 30, Elijah says to all the people, you can just imagine just allowing all those hours to go by. And they've watched this whole scene unfold as these prophets have tried and tried and tried for hours to get their God to answer any kind of thing. Never mind, where's the fire? Where's the voice? Where's anything? And so Elijah calls all the people in verse 30 to come near. And all the people came near him. And notice what he does. It says there in verse 30, he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. He took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And so he goes about first putting an altar back together. He restores an altar that had been torn down, taking 12 stones as a representation of the 12 tribes of Israel, and he builds this altar to God. And if that were not then enough, in verse 32 that we are told, Elijah says, make a trench around this altar. And I want you to make this trench so that it will hold a few gallons of water. Build this trench all around. And then once the trench is completed, I want you to fill four large jars with water and pour it on top of the burnt offering and on the wood. And so they pour the water on it once. Elijah says, do it again. And so they fill up the four big water jars again, and they pour it upon that altar again. And Elijah says, do it again. And so they fill it up and pour it on there again. for the fourth time, he says, do it again. And we get to the point that we are told that it says in verse 38, there's so much water running down the altar that has filled the trench as well. There's so much water. This thing is doused with water. It is soaked with water. And after that is done, after the directions are given to put this water all over the altar, I want you to notice what Elijah does. It says there in verse 38, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, but please watch, and that you have turned their hearts back. Elijah says, here's what I want them to know. The reason I want you to answer me, Lord, is so that the people will see, number one, that you are God, and number two, that you have come to turn their hearts back. And with the ending of that prayer, verse 38, it says, Fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and the water that was in the trench. Just imagine how much fire and lightning that took to just go, and it's all gone. Just consumed it. Verse 39, all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook, Kishon, and slaughtered them there. And if I could put them there, that's in accordance with Deuteronomy 13, that the false prophets were not to live before the Lord. And so Elijah carries out The very word of the Lord and the hearts of the people turn back to God and cry out, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Now, if I had you for an hour, I would do three lessons tonight, but I don't, so I will do two lessons for you from this passage tonight. Lord willing, next Sunday night we'll come back to this text and take on that third piece at that time. But two things I want you to see. Number one, something that I think we need to always do with every lesson, and you're probably getting used to me saying this by now, you've got to step back and just see the beauty of God. You just have to see the beauty of God here. Especially the beauty of God who does this to get the people to turn their hearts back to Him. That you have a God who's not just saying, I'm sick and tired of these people, and I'm sick and tired of Ahab, and so let the fire of the Lord come down and burn all them up. No, no. This is the patience and love and long-suffering mercy and grace of God. That you see the text making it very clear that what God is doing is trying to have a relationship with His people In fact, take a step back and consider the imagery of what has happened in this moment. That we have here an altar being built to God and the the bowl is placed upon this altar. It looks like a burnt offering that is making atonement for the people at this moment. Elijah has put the 12 tribes of Israel in symbolism on these rocks and built an altar. The bowl is there and it looks just like what Leviticus says to do in terms of making an atonement through a burnt offering. And that's exactly what happens. Not only that, but you have the symbolism of where they are at, that they are on Mount Carmel and fire coming down from God is a picture of how God had put together His covenant at Mount Sinai when the people had come to Sinai and it smoked and quaked and shook and all the people were saying, wow, look how this is God. And Moses, you've got to talk to God on our behalf because we will not be able to survive if we see something like this again. There is a a parallel that pictures the renewing of the covenant and that is all the more clear because Elijah doesn't make a new altar that he's repairing this altar. And what God is trying to show is that he is repairing this relationship with Israel. Even though Israel has wandered Israel is so far away from him, a burnt offering is made. It is done on the mountain. God has responded by fire. The altar has been repaired, And the whole point of all of this happening is to try to get the people to stop living between these two opinions. And God is trying to wield the hearts of His people. And this dramatic event is to try to accomplish that they get them to see that the Lord is God. And that leads us then to the second point. The second picture that is given here. I mentioned to you that verse 21 is the hub and the e of what this chapter is all about. That what Elijah observes and says that they are doing is that they are limping between two opinions. Here is God making atonement, renewing the covenant, and is supposed to get the people to stop limping between the two opinions. I want us to stop and consider why God calls this limping between these two opinions. You know, not wavering or dancing or hopping, but the word is to be crippled. They are limping and dragging themselves between these two opinions. The reason why it's also particularly interesting is it is the same word in verse 26, when we are told there that there was no voice and there was no answer, and they limped around the altar. This idea of being crippled around the altar and I want us to take a stop this, uh, a moment here and consider what is being told to us here. In fact, as an aside, if you ever wonder why I'm always uh, stuck on the ESV, uh, this is the only translation that puts them both as limping to try to show the importance between the two. And I think there's I think there's an important reason why. I think it is interesting because what he is showing here to them is that what Israel is doing to themselves by their indecision, it's trying to give a visual of what is happening. Is that you think that you are doing so well, but look at yourself. Look at your life. Your life is broken. You're, you're not well. You're, you're limping between the two. And I think that's the whole point, is because you to give yourself completely to God, your life is broken. It's like you're lame. It's like you're crippled. You're you're limping around. Stop limping between the two and commit yourself fully to the Lord. And I want us to see that that was what was being exemplified by the prophets. The prophets of Baal. Imagine it. They're living around the altar, cutting themselves and harming themselves, trying to get their God to answer. And you can imagine what a telling picture that would have been for Elijah just to stand there and say, look at that. Look at what they're doing to themselves. By worshiping Baal, By not devoting yourself completely to the Lord, look at what it's doing. They're bleeding all over the place is what the text says. They're hurting themselves. They're destroying themselves. They're harming their lives as they live around the altar trying to get this false God to answer them in some kind. And friends, this is the very idea that God is constantly trying to teach us as to why he doesn't want us living between two opinions. Because what we fail to see is that we are only hurting ourselves when we firmly plant one foot with God and one foot with the world. That's what Israel's doing right now. Sure, they've got some God. They haven't thrown him off yet, but they've got their Baal's and their Eshurim. And Elijah's trying to say, You're hurting yourself. You're ruining yourself. You're wrecking yourself. You're destroying yourself. And it's put together in this visual. You're limping around in life. And you could be healed if you would let God heal you. You could be whole if you would let God make you whole. But instead, you refuse. You refuse to give yourself completely to God. And that's why Jesus says something like, you know, you can't serve to ask persons. It's not that Jesus was like trying to be mean to you. He's trying to tell you, you're only hurting yourself if you refuse to pick. You're wrecking your life. You're destroying what God's trying to do for you. You're looking around in this world. You refuse to give yourself completely to God. And yet, so often, this is exactly what we try to do. You might remember that you have even James saying something similar and talking about the person who does such a thing, he is double minded. Remember the rest of that? In James 1, verse 6. He's unstable in all of his ways. What's he doing? He's looking around. Is flipping around life and unable to enjoy what God is trying to offer. You know one of the ways that we have the tendency to live between two opinions? One of probably the most dramatic, the most obvious ways that we do that is that we will run to the Lord when times are bad and then forgive him when times are good. That's probably the simplest way we live. As we start limping back to God and oh, things are getting bad. I better scrape my life up again. Okay. And then things get better again, and God comes through, and He answers, only for us to forget and go limping back to our way of life. Limping back to our gods, limping back to our desires, limping back to our selfish ways. So easy for us to forget God and prosperity and be consumed by our schedules, be consumed by our lives, be consumed by everything that we think is so important, so necessary. And what God is trying to show us is that you're living. You're living back and forth between Him. And that limp is coming because of our own failure to completely devote ourselves to the Lord. What I think is so amazing about the imagery as God tries to conquer our double-mindedness is uh, for us just to consider what happens here at Mount Carmel is a foreshadowing of what God was ultimately going to do on that mountain. At Mount Zion, God acted yet again. In an effort to end our divided allegiance so that we would stop living between two opinions by making atonement through the cross of Christ and renewing a covenant to us. This event at Mount Carmel is only emblematic of the great event that God would ultimately accomplish, when God would answer from heaven through a son. Trying to get us to see that we need to stop waffling back and forth, living back and forth, being not committed, but to give ourselves completely to the Lord. What God wants us to do is what we see the people on the mountain doing, openly confessing, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And I hope that you will think about your life and consider if you have committed yourself completely and fully to trusting in the Lord your God with all your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Or if it would be fair to say that you are living back and forth between the two opinions. Give your life to God. Stop living and be more. Let's go to the in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful picture of your mercy. Oh Lord, you are a merciful God. We praise you for it. So merciful in how you desire to win the hearts of people back to you. God, forgive us for as often as we live through this life. Forgive us for how often we live back and forth between serving you and serving ourselves. Forgive us for living back and forth between serving your desires and our desires. God, forgive us for being double minded. Forgive us for being non committal. Forgive us for lacking the zeal that you want us to have. Forgive us for not loving you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, we pray that we will be stronger. Lord, help us to see you work really. Help us to see your true power, that you are truly the Lord, and that there is no other. Help us to see that these other rivals, other gods, and other things that we hold on to and that we desire, do not respond, they do not answer, they do not know. Lord, our hearts can be so intertwined with these idols. Lord, I pray that you would expose that within ourselves. And rip those idolatrous ways out of our hearts. So that we can be fully committed to you. And completely faithful to you. Forgive us, Lord. In Jesus' name.